welcome to episode 10 of the Hope for the Animals podcast, sponsored by United Poultry Concerns. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and you can find all our past episodes at hopefortheanimalspodcast.org. And I welcome your feedback and comments. My email is hope at upc-online.org. On today's podcast, we have with us on the show fearless chicken advocate and rooster rescuer extraordinaire Justin Van Cleek from Triangle Chicken Advocates. We're going to get into Justin's interview soon because we had so much to cover. But first, I want to announce a very exciting upcoming event, UPC's Chicken Webinar. This is the first ever webinar dedicated to chickens, so it's going to be really a historic day. It's on Saturday, September 12, 2020, and if you're listening to this podcast after that date, the videos of each of the speakers will be available for viewing soon after on UPC's website which is upc-online.org. And the videos will also be available where you can register for the website, which is the Humane Hoax website. It's humanehoax.org. Justin Van Cleek and I are the organizers of the webinar, and we will be your hosts for that day. It's part of our Humane Hoax project that started with our Humane Hoax online summit in January of 2019, and we had another in 2020 just before the COVID craziness hit. So this will be our third webinar under this collaborative effort of the Humane Hoax project, and this time we are focusing on chickens. We have some really amazing speakers joining us on September 12th for the Chicken Webinar. UPC's founder and president, Karen Davis, will be starting us off with her presentation called Humane Eggs and Happy Wings, The Life and Death of Chickens Farmed for Food. Karen has decades of well-researched and intimate up-close knowledge of the chicken, meat, and egg industry, and she will be sharing not only about conventional chicken farming, but also about the humane hoax of cage-free and free-range and other humane-labeled eggs and meat. The industry is brandishing these labels to make people feel better about chicken, eggs, and meat. Because activists like Karen Davis and organizations like United Poultry Concerns have exposed the industry for the horror show that it is over the last few decades. So the industry, instead of actually making changes that are better for the birds, they are responding by shifting their rhetoric and messaging to feel-good labels, and that is the humane hoax. Another aspect of the humane hoax is the new fad of keeping backyard chickens for eggs and for meat. Our next speaker at the chicken webinar, as well as being the co-organizer, is Justin Van Cleek, who will address this with their presentation, The Terrible Truths of Backyard Chickens. Some people who have the land and money and resources recognize the problems with industrial farming or just 
want to try and save money. And they'll get into do-it-yourself or DIY backyard chicken keeping. But there are hidden horrors happening in these backyards. And not only for hens, but for the countless roosters who are unwanted because they don't lay eggs and end up dumped on the side of roads and in the overwhelmed shelter system and, and of course, on the chopping block. Justin will share their experience rescuing birds from these backyard situations at the webinar and later in the podcast. But keeping chickens as companions can be ethical and rewarding, a rewarding relationship if they are treated with respect and they are your friends, not just a commodity for eggs. Our third speaker at the chicken webinar will be Mary Britton Klaus of Chicken Run Rescue. She will share the best practices for caring for companion chickens. She has been rescuing and caring for chickens for decades. And even if you don't have chickens, it's an interesting discussion and this may inspire you to rescue some hens or roosters. There are so many that need homes or just helping with rescues and sanctuaries, helping with transport and other support. It's great to know chickens. Next up at the Chicken Webinar, we will have Nora Constance Marino. She is with the Alliance to End Chickens as Caporis, and UPC is part of that alliance. She is an attorney who's been working on the issue of Caporis for a number of years. Caporis is a ritual performed by a small segment of the Orthodox Jewish community where they they cordon off a section of a street in a city like New York, and they will take chickens, hundreds of chickens, and they swing them around their head or the heads of children, and then give them to a butcher that's on site, and the butcher slits the bird's throats and kills them right there. This all happens in September for Yom Kippur, a prominent Jewish holiday, they believe that the chicken absorbs and absolves their sins for the year, that their sins are transferred to the chicken, but there are many, many Jewish people who disapprove of this ritual and see it for the cruel practice that it is. Many Jews use money in a bag to swing instead of the chicken and then donate the money to charity to absolve their sins. So there are cruelty-free options for this ritual. Nora has filed lawsuits trying to end this slaughter in the streets, and she will tell us all about those efforts at the Chicken Webinar. And we will wrap up the day with a panel of young activists on the front lines of the movement. Our panel is called Taking Action for Chickens, Inspiring Activists on the Frontline, and it features Rocky Schwartz, Mahika Gupta, and Julia Magnus, each of them have a unique way of bringing the message of compassion for chickens to the public, and we will get to hear all about their efforts and ask questions. The Chicken Webinar is sponsored by United Poultry Concerns and the Triangle Chicken Advocates. Other co-sponsors are Free From Harm, the Micro Sanctuary Resource Center, and Compassionate Living. I really hope you'll join us for this historic first ever chicken webinar on September 12th. It's free. And again, if you're listening to this podcast after that date, the videos will be available on UPC's website as well as humanehoax.org. So please register for this free event at 
www.humanehoax.org, and I'll put that link in the show notes. We'll see you at the webinar. Okay, so I want to introduce our guest for this podcast. Justin Van Cleek has a PhD in English and is a freelance writer, educator, and community organizer. Justin goes by the pronouns they, them. Justin spends most of their time working at the Triangle Chicken Advocate Sanctuary, which they and their partner Roz founded in 2014, and which inspired them to start the Micro Sanctuary Movement together later that year. Justin also founded and contributes to the radical vegan blog, Striving with Systems. And we, of course, are co-organizing and will be co-hosting the Humane Hoax Chicken Webinar that I talked about earlier. Hi, Justin. Great to have you. I hope. So uh, it's great to have you. I know you're over in North Carolina and I'm in California, so we are coast to coast for this one. So I want to hear about you. When and why did you go vegan? What got you into activism and rescue work? What's Justin's story? Yeah, so um, I went vegan in 1999 when I was a sophomore in college. I went to Virginia Tech, so I was in southwestern Virginia in you know pretty rural area. And so that meant going vegan was kind of a, a process of uh, finding like brown soy milk and, you know, stuff like that. Like it was a long time ago. Brown soy milk? What's brown soy yeah, milk? Yeah, no. Yeah, <laughs> it was back uh, for, for some reason back in the day, like the, the soy milk that we had in, you know, packages and stuff like that was kind of a brownish color instead of the lovely white that it is now. Oh, okay. I kind of, I know what you're talking about. I kind of remember yeah. that. Yeah. It looked kind of yeah. like dirty milk. <laughs> yeah, no, it was pretty scary looking. So, um, <laughs> So anyway, so so I went vegan when I was was that when I was a sophomore in college, and I and I'd always you know had a real affinity for animals. I had even like tinkered with being vegetarian when I was in middle school, and then I went vegetarian for real in high school. But the process of going vegan was really a matter of just me starting to reflect more and more on kind of like my impact on the world. And when I thought about that, like one of the first things that came up, of course, was like how I, my choices were impacting uh, non-human animals. And I spent kind of like a, a few days, um, like in a real philosophical funk, um, thinking about about this mm -hmm. question. And I just kind of finally realized, like, I wasn't comfortable with even the possibility of causing suffering to animals. And so being vegetarian was no longer enough because I knew that like if I was consuming animal products, that there was a likelihood that somewhere along the line, I was going to be causing harm to, you know, and suffering to animals. And so I didn't even really know all the details about the dairy industry and the egg industry at that point. I didn't really know anything about health or climate change. It was just that fundamental question of like, am I comfortable making choices that could potentially have direct, you know, negative impacts on, on non-human animals. And so I, you know, after thinking about it really intensely for a few days, the answer I came up with was no. And then I was vegan and I never looked back. And for a long time, um, like I'm, I'm kind of an introvert and a hermit. So my, my veganism was very much a personal thing. Like I didn't jump right into activism and advocacy and things like that. Like I pretty much just was kind of a quiet vegan you know, going to school, getting my degrees, um, you know, and things like that. And, you know, for a good decade or so, like I was also actually really the only vegan that I knew. And it may have been, I mean, it was largely a consequence of, of 
geographical location. Um, I was in, you know, like I said, like Southwestern and Central Virginia for those times. And so like, I, I didn't meet any other vegans. And so, you know, for a long time, like my veganism was really focused on just kind of like learning more um, and starting to understand more kind of like the bigger picture. But I wasn't really doing like any advocacy or activism or things like that. And then really like when I started transitioning into kind of being more active, was living in, in uh, Western Virginia and I organized a screening of Forks Over Knives. And uh, it, was, it was pretty amazing. It was actually turned up being a big event. And in this small town in Western Virginia, we had like almost 100 people come out to the screening. And so it kind of showed me like, you know, the impact that, that you can have if you try to work in the community to do organizing and get the information out. And so that was really kind of like the beginning of me starting to, to branch out from being just kind of like quiet, personal vegan, you know, introvert hermit living in my, living alone in my house to, to starting to do community organizing. So as far as the rescue work and the connection of veganism to rescue, um, that really got started when uh, I got my partner, Roz, and I um, got together. And Roz had been doing uh, cat and dog rescue for a number of years before we met. And so I, unlike a lot of partners who kind of begrudgingly deal with their partner doing cat and dog rescue, like I very quickly got into um, being a participant and actively involved in it. And I think for me, like really one of the... Um, the key moments was we rescued like a 16-year-old husky with dementia and who was mostly blind and mostly deaf. Um, she had been dumped at a shelter and we adopted her and we knew it was kind of like a hospice situation going into it. For me, like I hadn't really had to deal with death very much before then. Um, I, again, I had been living alone with plants and, you know, plants die, <laughs> but you really like, you know, it doesn't really just, you know, shake your world up too much. Right. Um, so... So I kind of, we kind of knew going into it that it was going to be a hospital situation and she wasn't going to be around for very long. You know, she was with us for a little bit over, uh, you know, almost two years actually. And in that last, like, you know, six months or so, like she was in a wheelchair. Uh, she had a condition that's uh, common for people with dementia called sundowners, where she would be kind of asleep during the day, but then want to be up all night. And because she had mobility problems and dementia problems, like she couldn't be up unattended. So I ended up staying up with her a lot of nights to kind of care for her and watch over her and stuff like that. And when she finally did pass, it was devastating. And, and it was really my first experience with losing someone that was that close to me. Um, but it also showed me that the fears that I had had about caregiving and the, the fears that I'd had about having responsibility for the well-being of others, it was something that I could handle both like physically and practically, but also emotionally. So caring for her was really, I think, kind of like the big moment for me where it started to make sense what the value was of doing rescue and caregiving and seeing the impact that having compassion and wanting to give respect and dignity to non-human animals um, on an individual like basis, what that means both for them, but also for you. And so if you fast forward a couple of years, we moved from Virginia down to North Carolina and brought a pro bought a property with more acreage in the woods. We were continuing to kind of be involved in like cat and dog type stuff. And we started to notice that there were also farmed animals showing up in shelters. And so when we saw that, that's when we started to think about, well, huh, like who's helping them? And then that's really where things took off for the both of us. And for, you know, for me, especially like when it comes to, to making veganism, not only about like my choices and kind of what I put into my body and things like that, but also like seeing veganism in the context of the rights and like liberation of other, of other beings. Mm, yeah. 
there was a really sweet story about the husky and it's interesting it made me think that you know there's often that question of well plants feel pain that's such a great response as well how is it different when your house plant dies or when your pet dies when your dog or cat right. dies that's a really telling um, distinction there between the two. Yeah. yeah. So I do want to hear more about your rescue work. And, and now, so you moved to North Carolina and you started Triangle Chicken Advocate Sanctuary. And mm -hmm. so where are you located in North Carolina and what do you do? How many animals do you have? Tell us about your sanctuary work. Yeah. So um, we're kind of in like the central area of North Carolina um, for people who are interested in geography like we're we're just outside of chapel hill which is kind of in the central triangle region of north carolina um and that's and, uh, and that's where the name comes from correct yeah exactly so yeah no we don't we don't just like ge geometric shapes we, we it's, <laughs> it's based on the fact that we're, we're located in the triangle of north carolina so the yeah the triangle aspect of our name really emphasizes the what from the beginning for us was our focus which was to help local animals who were coming like into shelters or were being dumped in the woods uh you know situations like that not like trying to participate in in huge rescues of of um, animals who were in you know like industrial scale farms um where they have you know tens of thousands of animals and stuff like that because uh those opportunities were pretty few and far between but we were seeing constantly farmed animals coming into local shelters and there really wasn't anybody who was focusing on helping them. And so for us, like that's really kind of where we got started with Triangle Chicken Advocates was starting to see farmed animals in local shelters and wanting to try to step up and do something to help them. And the way that we kind of got into chickens specifically was because in the process of doing this, like typically what or originally what we had done would be to like to see an animal in a shelter and then reach out to vegan sanctuaries kind of in our region and see if they could take them and then work on getting the animal out of the shelter into the sanctuary. But uh, in February of 2014, we rescued two hens from a local shelter. And thanks to a snowstorm, they spent more time with us than we had originally anticipated. And we fell just madly in love with them. And and it was it was really fascinating because, you know, we had talked a little bit about like rescuing chickens one day. And, you know, we could, we now that we had three acres out in the country you know we, we had space where we could one day have some rescued chickens and but we really didn't have any concrete plans for it um, because we didn't really think of ourselves like as a sanctuary for farmed animals we just thought of ourselves as like a couple of vegans with with a lot you know with cats and dogs who were trying to like help out farmed animals so there's a disconnect between like the whole concept of sanctuary and who we were and what we were doing and so when the two hens whom we named clementine and amandine when they came to to be with us and we set them up like in a in a you know situation like a living situation in our basement mm -hmm. um we we fell in love with them and realized is like no like we we want them to be you know part of our family and we can do it now i mean we have the space that was really where we started to rethink like what it means to be a sanctuary and also to um think about ways in which we could use the space that we had to create a sanctuary for animals rather than just like relying on other like large sanctuaries to do all of that intake and caregiving. And so for us like to really like see, start to see, to see them as family members and to see them as, as being, you know, to see us as being able to like care for them where we were at, not like in some future time after we won the lottery. Like that's really where we started to, to transition away from being just like a, like a couple of vegans with, with cats and dogs to starting to be like an actual, you know, to be a sanctuary. Yeah, and, and you and your partner coined the term micro-sanctuary. 
and started the micro sanctuary movement, which now is has expanded across the country. So what is a micro sanctuary exactly? And, and, and what role do you see it playing in both the larger scale animal sanctuaries and in the vegan movement? Yeah, so I mean, when we started to think about what we were doing at our at our home, which was quickly turning into a, turning into a to a sanctuary and into an organization, we thought about sanctuary the concept in terms of models that existed at the time, like Woodstock and you know sanctuary and farm sanctuary, um, animal place places that were very large, you know, had hundreds of animals, hundreds of acres, and you know, took in uh, lots of donations and had staffs and things like that. Like that was the model for what sanctuary was to us. And so we really didn't feel like that was at all what we were doing. That's why we started to think about ourselves as a micro sanctuary because we were just, it was just the two of us. We were on three acres rather than, you know, 300 acres um, or even 30 acres. And we were really focusing kind of on doing like, like a small scale thing and it really kind of just being the two of us, you know, the way, the same way that like, you know, you would rescue cats or dogs and make them part of your family. Like that's the way we approached doing the rescue and caregiving work. Not as like, okay, well now we need to get a board and a staff and raise millions of dollars and get t-shirts and stuff like that, you know, like, <laughs> um, but yeah, so, so micro sanctuaries really, the whole kind of central concept of them is, is about um, vegans like doing what they can to provide farmed animals and other exploited animals who are not typically seen as companions to provide homes for them and caregiving for them um, on, you know, like for the rest of their lives in ways that we would consider normal for cats and dogs, but we might not consider normal for like chickens or rats. And so it's really starting to kind of like challenge the species, this notion, notion that dogs and cats are family but chickens and rats and pigs and sheep and, you know, and, self, and other animals are, are somehow other, like they're not, they're not family members, you know, even if we don't eat them, we don't like have a real relationship with them. We don't really know a whole lot about them. We know that they live on farms or things like that. And that's not really not good. We don't like that, but we don't know who they are as individuals. And so the way that I see micro sanctuaries as being really important is that one, like not only is it about like a, taking a collective approach to the problem of, of exploited animals needing care and needing homes, but it's also about really starting to um, come to understand and to represent the individuality of these fairly unknown individuals to the rest of the, the public. And that, that includes the vegan community. Like before we rescued Clementine and Amandine, we had very little experience with chickens. Um, and we really had no clue who they were. I mean, again, like I had been vegan for 15 years at that point. But, but I really didn't know who chickens were as individuals. Um, and when we got into doing the rescue of these farmed animals and we connected with chickens especially, it, I mean, it completely changed my understanding of who I was as a vegan. And I think that that's something that people don't really recognize about the value of doing rescue and caregiving is one, like not only are you doing something really important in changing the life of an individual animal who you know is, needs help, but you're also really changing yourself. And um, I think it really brings home the whole purpose of why we go vegan, which is to seek equality and justice and liberation for individuals who are exploited for no other reason other than laws and culture says that we can do it. And so, you know, for me, like when I really started to see myself as a vegan in the framework of the experiences of these individuals who we had the opportunity and the good fortune to come to know, 
it, it really made me, me see different, see differently what being vegan meant. And it wasn't so much about like my personal, you know, kind of like, like purity and choices and stuff, but it was more about like recognizing that like by being vegan, being actively engaged in caregiving and rescue for individuals in need, like it was a matter of, you know, helping to achieve liberation from exploitation for, for everybody. And so I feel like it definitely both individualized my understanding of veganism in the sense of like, I could understand what my choices and what my actions, the, um, the consequences that those had on individuals and who these individuals were that would be experiencing those consequences. But it also put it into the bigger picture of um, recognizing that the effort for, for liberation needs to happen on, on a collective framework and, on a, and be a collective effort. Um, and so the more people that we have engaged in doing this sort of thing, it you know provides opportunities for more people to provide homes, but also provides opportunity for more people to expand their understanding of, and I think empathy for these species who typically are just tucked away into farms and we really don't know much or anything about them. Yeah, and you have uh, the Microsanctuary Resource Center. Talk a little about that and, and uh, what it provides, and, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes, uh, sure. that website, but tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so when we initially started the Microsanctuary Movement, we, we went ahead and made it into a 501c3 nonprofit so that we could do things like provide support for people, but also um, we had quickly established a grant program to provide micro-grants to individuals and to nonprofits who were um, engaged in making and, and you know, running micro-sanctuaries to help with little bits of support for special projects and, and vet, veterinary care needs and stuff like that. And so after a few years, we kind of wanted to shift away from presenting ourselves as like the micro-sanctuary movement and, and instead like backing away from kind of like trying to own it and recognizing that micro-sanctuary had become like it was a movement that was its own, its own thing and that didn't need us to like regulate it. And so we, we um, changed the name to Micro Sanctuary Resource Center so that we could kind of focus instead on like representing ourselves as, as a support network for people. And so what Micro Sanctuary Resource Center does is um, the, the microgram program is still a, a key part of it. Um, and we're one of the or only organizations that provides um, small grants to individuals. So you don't have to be a 501c3 to be eligible to apply for a microgrant to help out with, you know, sanctuary expenses. But uh, in addition to that, you know, we do work, like do a lot of one-on-one -on -one mentorship with people who are doing rescue and running micro sanctuaries. Um, and then we also, um, you know, work uh, with other organizations to create kind of like educational resources and other forms of support to help people provide better care for the animals that they rescue. And for us, like really like one of the main drivers, um, in addition to, to wanting to kind of help support growing the community of vegans who are providing homes to, you know, non-traditional species is to, um, to raise the level of, of what's considered, uh, you know, standard care for, for species like chickens or, or other farmed animals and exploited species. Because right now we're, we're in, a, in a situation where the, like the medical knowledge and the standards of care for animals like farmed animals and, you know, uh, animals have been rescued from laboratories and stuff like that. It's it's pretty low. I mean, there are there are specialists out there who have a lot of knowledge, but they're kind of scattered, and there isn't really like a like a collective body of, of information, like saying what are best practices based on the needs of the the animals, rather than like kind of industry standards. And so, uh, a big part of what we've been doing is really trying to like make this access to the best information and best practices 
kind of more open sourced and shared amongst the community. You know, we've done a lot to like raise the, the basic standards of care for chickens, for example. And I think, it's, I think it's having a really big impact. Like I feel like there's more and more awareness of what chickens' needs are and kind of the experiences that they have as a result of their domestication. Yeah, I, I love this concept, the micro-sanctuary movement. I mean, why is it that we protect and love dogs and cats? It's because they're in our lives. We know them. Right. We know someone who has a dog. We know someone who has a cat. We've, you know, if we don't ourselves, uh, I think this is such a great idea to have farmed animals be part of our lives too. Um, so people get used to them and know them and get to know them and know them as individuals. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. And I mean, I think like, like it, people maybe like downplayed a little bit, but I think it's a really powerful kick in the shin to these cultural ideas of speciesism that we have to see, like, for example, chickens be living lives that people would expect for dogs or cats to be living, you know, and like to say, like, why would a chicken be inside? Like, why is there a chicken, you know, sitting on your couch watching TV with <laughs> like, you know, things like that, though, like, how was like, why does that happen? Because I thought chickens can only live like in fields and you know stuff like that. And you start to really understand that no, like these these chickens are are individuals who have experiences of the world that are not that different from from species that we we have no problem accepting as family members. And it's really chipping away at these like like long held uh, notions about who they are. And and for me, I think that's really powerful because if you start to see like chick again, I'm just using the example for chickens because I, I love chickens. But um, <laughs> like if you start to see chickens as like individuals who want to sit and watch a movie with you on the couch, like how does it make any sense to kill billions of them every year for food? It doesn't. Yeah. Like it's a travesty. And so when you see that travesty through the lens of that one individual chicken that you have a relationship with, it becomes, you know, it becomes like an offense. And it's about you know, an offense to your family, not just like something awful that's happening in the you know world of, of bad stuff that happens. It's literally touching you and your family. And it's really powerful, I think, to, to do that. Um, and also too, like I think micro sanctuaries are really powerful in the context of that like personal relationship because large sanctuaries by virtue of their, their size and the resources that are involved, like they end up kind of taking place where farms typically are and a lot of times they are like old farm properties. And as you know, like farms are out in the country, like they're away from the population centers to some degree. And so, you know, like if you can make micro sanctuaries, something that can happen like in, in urban environments, which they very much can, like you bring these individuals to the people rather than requiring the people who have resources to like travel to go see, you know, go, go, go visit a sanctuary out in the country. And again, there's nothing wrong with that model, the, the, the large sanctuary model, but like this is an opportunity for us to like, you know, make sanctuary a concept and like to make exploited animals a presence in places where people might not otherwise get the opportunity to interact with them. And micro sanctuaries really have the power to do that, especially urban micro sanctuaries. So I want to ask you about backyard chicken keeping because it's it's really on the rise now because of the pandemic. People have been uh, getting chicks and chickens for eggs. Uh, yeah. But but I mean it's been a growing trend for a while now with the popularity of of do-it-yourselfers, DIY, and even backyard chicken slaughter and other animals slaughtered in the backyard. 
So what do you see as problems that come with this backyard chicken craze? Yeah, no, it's a, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about that because, um, I mean, since our founding, you know, we've been dealing with the victims of backyard chicken farming. Um, and I, and I don't like to separate backyard chicken keeping from like the larger, the egg industry or the flesh industry, you know, like corporations like Tyson and Purdue and stuff like that, that we all know and hate. It's all a spectrum. Um, and also me, just, just really to, to clarify, this is keeping chickens for their eggs. This is not yes. sanctuary. So micro sanctuary yeah. is something different. This is when yeah. someone gets chickens for the eggs and for meat. Yeah. Just to be yeah, clear. So, yeah. Yes. So, so exploit, exploiting, exploiting the bodies of chickens for, yeah. for human use um, is, is yeah, what I'm referring to specifically. So, so it's all a spectrum of, of exploitation. Um, and, and there isn't really like a, a distinct this, um, separation between your neighbor with, you know, a flock of, of egg-laying chickens in their backyard and, and then, you know, a Tyson shed um, with, you know, thousands of chickens stuffed inside. Um, it's, it's all a matter of, of degree. It's not a difference so much of, of like, kind. And there really isn't a difference, um, like, in the ethical considerations that go into thinking about, like, what happens on, a, on a, an industrial farm versus what happens in your neighbor's backyard. But I just don't, I don't think that we're used to seeing it that way. And vegans are, are guilty of perpetuating this distinction. Um, that's something that's troubled me greatly since we've, we've been doing this work and just see how false it is to separate, you know, like small scale operations or backyard chicken farmers or, um, you know, things like that from the, the supposed boogeymen of, you know, industrial farm corporations. Like if my life's work potentially is to, to get people to stop making that distinction and for me, it's a very real and very ever-present uh, reality of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of chickens that I've rescued in this, you know, six plus years that we've been doing this, 90% of them are coming from people's backyards. Mm. Wow. You know, and like, it, like we, can, we cannot keep up with the victims um, who are out there um, just in our area from the backyard chicken craze we've been doing this for, for years and trying to create networks for, you know, for homes and stuff like that. And we can't keep up. And, and it's become more and more popular in the, with the uh, coronavirus stuff going on, it's become even more of an issue um, where people just see chickens as, as, as food and they may get chickens and they may, you know, consider the chickens as pets, but then continue to eat their eggs or even, you know, even kill them for flesh while believing that they're doing something wonderful and sustainable and, and that they're, the chickens are leading these happy lives. But it's, it's really much, a much more sinister situation. Um, and that's why I always tell people that, you know, don't get caught up in looking at the aesthetics of backyard chicken keeping. Because if you just focus on the aesthetics, you know, yeah, the chickens have grass to run around in and they get to, you know, dust bathe and, and sit in the sun and, and all that sort of stuff. Like Maybe, that's, that's, sometimes. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. So, in, but in like the, in the ideal situations that people use to defend eating backyard eggs, like that's the sort of stuff that I that they tell me is that right. well, you know chickens are pets and they lead better lives, you know, the best lives possible and all that sort of stuff. So, but but what that what that ignores is kind of what went into making it possible for chickens to be who they are as food producers for humans. And so, I, I think the 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 most startling fact about modern domesticated chickens is the fact that thanks to millennia really but especially in the past century or so selective breeding 
for the purposes of, of food production, a, a modern egg-laying hen of any breed, including the so-called like heritage breeds and stuff like that, they're going to be laying 20 to 30 times as many eggs as their wild ancestors. Let me say that again, 20 to 30 times as many eggs as their wild ancestors. What that means is that by, by the time a hen is two years old, she has ovulated as many times as a human person reaching menopause. Wow. Yeah. And so that's not natural. Like there's no evolutionary situation in which that would naturally occur because making eggs is basically like making babies and making food for babies. And so that takes tons of, of, of nutrients and resources out of the, the, the hen's body. And, and to do that on almost a daily basis is absurd. There's no natural situation in which that would happen because there's no ad advantage to it. It's, it's deleterious for their health in many ways. And so when a hen, you know, hatches and, and enters the world, like she is pre-programmed thanks to domestication and selective breeding to lay that many eggs. And so, you know, whether or not she's in a, in a battery cage or in a backyard, she is forced to do that and to endure that and for her body to go through that. And th they have no escape. Even when they get to our sanctuary, like we can, we can do interventions to help stop them from laying, but it's not a permanent thing. And so even when they get to our sanctuary, like if they're still laying eggs, they still have to go through that every day. And they still face the health consequences that come from that. Industry studies have shown is that the number one cause of death for egg laying hens is reproductive problems related to egg laying. And so every time that they ovulate, they uh, run the risk of getting cancer. They run the risk of getting a number of other reproductive related disease or reproductive diseases related to, to egg laying. And so because it happens so frequently, they're constantly running the risk of, of basically dying because they've been forced to lay these many eggs. And so this is going on in your neighbor's backyard with every single hen that they have. In addition to that, I know we're going to talk about roosters a little bit more specifically, but for, every, for because chickens, like most species, uh, hatch roughly equal numbers of male and female chicks, if your neighbor has a, a flock of, of hens in their backyard, every single one of those hens has a dead brother somewhere. And most roosters are killed as babies at hatcheries. And this is true for hatcheries that provide eggs to backyard farmers and provide chicks to backyard farmers, just as it's true for hatcheries that provide uh, hens to Tyson farms. And I just want to clarify too, going back to the reproductive issues, uh, they, on, on a typical farm, commercial farming, they would be killed within just a couple years. Their egg production starts right. to decline, so they would go to slaughter. So when you take them out of that horrible situation and rescue them and they get to live their lives out, these problems become really manifest then you know they that's when they start getting impacted you know eggs and all all kinds right. of issues like that right yeah and so and and again like the i I'm, I'm glad you brought up the slaughter question so industrial farms by like there's no wiggle room from this like by the time the hens each reach 18 to 24 months of, of age they're sent to the rendering factory yeah. um because that's like when their egg laying starts to, to decline they don't stop laying eggs they just don't lay as many on backyard farms many play, many people do the exact same thing we see it all the time people posting ads on craigslist well you know i need it's time for the new you know new spring chicks so i'm getting rid of all my old two-year-old chickens um it happens all the time so you know it doesn't matter whether or not the fact that they're in somebody's backyard when they're seen as primarily producers of food, 
there's always going to be that calculus that's happening of when it's not worth it to keep them anymore. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of people who, are, who have backyard chickens, they don't want to keep them if they're not laying as many eggs as, you know, they could be because it costs, you know, next to nothing to get a new, new influx of, of, of younger chickens in. For us, like it's one of the most, I think, interesting things that, that we deal with as a sanctuary rescuing typically. I mean, we have a number of chickens who are the common industry breeds. So the reds and the leghorns, but we also have a lot of the so-called backyard breeds, which are a little bit, you know, more variety, but all of them, like as they start to get older, like they don't stop laying eggs completely. Like they still potentially have reproductive problems. So like we have, you know, leghorn chickens who are like eight years old. We have a variety, like a lot of our residents are getting kind of up into the eight and nine year old range. And, you know, we're constantly trying to race against the clock to keep them from, from developing problems. You know, one of the most, um, I think, interesting things that we can do as, as chicken-focused sanctuary is to start to, to develop care protocols for aging chickens because the industry doesn't do that. The industry chickens don't live past two years old. And for a lot of the backyard chicken keepers, you know, they may have hens who reach eight years old or reach their teens. But the problem is, is that those chickens aren't getting really, like, careful medical care they just happen to be you know it's like your 95 year old grandmother who smokes any bacon you know eats bacon in every every day like you know like a lot some of these chickens do make it to old age without any like you know proper medical care mm -hmm. but that's not a standard yeah the standard is, is that the standard is is that they don't make it past you know four or five years old because that's when they start to have they start to really develop serious the serious um reproductive problems um if they're not slaughtered at, at two years old so, you know, we're trying really hard to develop kind of like protocols for, for caring for aging chickens, but that's not something that backyard chicken keepers do or care about. And so when their chickens die from some massive, you know, reproductive problem, they just say, oh, well, you know, they died from old age. They're five years old. They are, they're an old chicken. But <laughs> to put it in context, like for a chicken to be eight years old on a backyard farm is seen as like, you know, an amazing thing. But that's not even middle age for how long chickens should be living. Their wild ancestors, red jungle fowl, can live, you know, up to 30 years in, in captivity where they're getting, you know, uh, proper diet and, and say, you know, care and stuff like that. But, you know, backyard farmers are always seeing themselves as like, you know, doing something amazing and special because they don't have them in, in a shed and they're not slaughtering them. But there are so many hidden things that happen on backyard farms because, you know, the chickens aren't, you know, showing them signs that they're not feeling well, or they're not showing them signs that they have like a reproductive problem going on until they just die one day. And so, you know, without having that medical knowledge, backyard farmers are just assuming that their chickens are happy and healthy and wonderful. And meanwhile, the vast majority of them may be walking around with, you know, brewing, brewing health problems, and they just don't know. Yeah. And I think also there's a huge difference between just having these chickens out there for their eggs and, and being a caring, loving friend to these animals and being tuned in to if they are not feeling well or if they're not in the best health. I mean, when you're a sanctuary person, you can you know the chickens and you can feel that, that something's right. going on with them. Uh, so if it's a backyard you know, egg producer, they may not tune into that at all and the chicken just suffers. Well, and also they may they they may not be willing to do the caregiving that's necessary. That's right, or pay the vet bills. Yeah. yeah, no, because I mean, if you bought a chicken for five dollars and they get sick and they need a thousand dollar surgery, most farmers in their right mind aren't going to do that. Yeah, you know, and I mean, for so it, I mean, it's an entirely different approach, and I think like it's really important to emphasize that even if you have 
neighbors or family who have chickens and they eat their eggs, but they otherwise like treat them just like family members and pets and all that sort of stuff. Like you cannot connect the consumption of this product. That is the entire reason that these beings exist and the entire reason that these beings suffer so much from your choice to like take that and eat that. You can't draw that line between, well, the eggs are just there, so I'm going to eat them versus like, you know, seeing like these are all the things that chickens deal with and develop and, you know, the ways that they suffer and die because they were bred to be egg machines or because they were bred to be, you know, like flesh machines. You can't disconnect those two things. And so it's not a, it's not a benign act when somebody has back their chickens and eats their eggs. Like it doesn't, it's not a, it's not a neutral thing. It's actively participating in their suffering and the industry that keeps them suffering and breeds billions, you know, millions and millions of them every single year for the purpose of providing food. And so that's why I really want people to take away. It's a continuum. It's a spectrum from the backyard to the, the Tyson shed. Um, it's not a, an either or situation. Like they're totally connected. And so until you break away from the connection of, of chickens with food, you're constantly going to be perpetuating and participating in that cycle of violence. A lot of people think that it's really just hens that we're talking about when we're talking about the suffering in the egg industry. They just think about the hens, um, both industrial scale or backyard or whatever. But many don't realize that roosters suffer considerably as well. So why are roosters suffering so people can eat eggs? What's the connection there? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really important conversation to have. And I, and I alluded to it earlier when I, when I brought up the fact that, you know, chickens hatch roughly equal numbers of, of roosters and hens. The fact that for every hen, there is a rooster somewhere who's either dead or abandoned or, you know, um, a small number of them are living, living still. But the entire industry is kind of reliant upon seeing roosters as basically trash um and and that's 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 true for like i said like for for large corporations as much as it's true for your backyard you know your neighbor with hens in their backyard because the the only reason that that chickens are valuable to people who eat you know animal products is for their their products and so you know if roosters don't lay eggs why would you want to keep them around you don't need a rooster around for for hens to lay eggs um, the hens are going to lay just as many eggs without the rooster as they will with, you know, with one. The roosters really, they're, they're just entirely a byproduct. The few who are needed to keep perpetuating baby chickens um, are vastly outnumbered by the number of hens who are wanted for making eggs. And that's right, primarily the breeders, what they, they don't need that many breeders to, be no. able to have mm-hmm. a huge amount of uh, chicks to hatch. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No. And, and again, like if they're like, the, so the hatcheries and stuff who are specifically you know, producing eggs for the purposes of, of making chicks to sell. Like they do, do need roosters around to fertilize the eggs. But if you just want eggs, you don't need a rooster. Like there's no reason for you to have a rooster. Um, a lot of times the roosters are going to want to kick your ass because you're trying to take eggs from their hens, you know? And so like one of the main reasons that, that roosters are abandoned and dumped if they do make it to maturity is because they're doing what they are supposed to do, which is to protect their hens. And so, you know, what people typically see as aggression on the part of the rooster is actually the rooster doing their, their job. Their primary job is to protect their flock. So roosters are protectors, roosters are peacekeepers, 
but they're not, you know, they're not killers. And so people completely misunderstand rooster behavior. And, you know, it really centers on just that continuation of human narcissism, where if the rooster isn't giving me something I want, and the rooster is, is not behaving in the way I want them to, and, and is bothering me in my effort to, you know, get the eggs that I want, the rooster's gone. And so w- without question, roosters are, are hands down the most numerous um, animal, farmed animals who are in need of help. And they're also the hardest to, um, to find homes for. Um, and we're one of the, the few sanctuaries who has focused on roosters. And so we've been working really hard to um, like develop educational resources, not only about like caring for roosters and, and just like helping people understand who roosters are, but also to do things like uh, show people that roosters can live as part of a flock with other roosters and to do groundbreaking work to, to change the understanding that, that people have of roosters because we know them as individuals and we see their true individuality and their true you know, instinctual behaviors. We don't you know, see them through the lens of an exploitative speciesist framework. And so for us, like, you know, we understand the way, the way that, they, that they behave and the interactions that they have. And so our goal is to help people understand them better in the hopes that they'll be willing to, to, to provide homes for them. Um, and also, ideally, like, you know, people will just stop eating eggs because if you eat eggs, by consequence, you're, you're causing roosters to either be killed or to be made homeless. And yeah, so that's, that's such a good point. I mean, I, yeah. I really want to emphasize that people don't realize that connection that when you're eating yeah. eggs, you are causing the suffering, abandonment, uh, killing in some way of a rooster. Yeah. And that's, and again, and that's true no matter where that egg, egg comes from. Yeah. Um, like there is no difference in the treatment of roosters between, in, you know, large corporations and small scale hatcheries and backyard farmers because it's it's just by nature like they roosters and hens come into the world in about equal numbers and if roosters are valueless nobody wants them and so what happens to them and so that's why like i you know like i've (laughs) developed my skills over the years of catching roosters in the wild because so many roosters and it seems to be a particularly american phenomenon like i don't see it happening as much in other countries but like rooster dumping is a like a like a pastime amongst amongst backyard chicken keepers. Mm. Um, you know, like once a rooster crows, they are put in the car and they drive out, driven out to the country, and they're thrown out into the woods. And people seem to to have this notion that that chickens are basically wild animals. And so if you throw a rooster into the woods, they're going to be able to have find food. They're going to be able to find water. They'll be perfectly fine. And that's so far from the truth. Chickens are domesticated animals, yeah. like they're domesticated prey species. They cannot live in the wild in, you know, in most environments without human care. Um, I mean, you know, there are like feral colonies of chickens in different places like Florida and Hawaii and stuff like that. Um, but those are special cases. You know, if you dump a rooster out into the woods, like they're not going to become a feral colony like in Florida or something like that. They're going to be killed. You know, they're either going to die from starvation and malnutrition or they're going to die from a predator. And so, you know, for, for us, like one of the, one of the main <laughs> sources of, of where we rescue roosters from is from people dumping them in the woods. And, you know, that's like, I, I, I can't express how vile of, of a behavior that is in consequence of wanting to keep chickens for eggs. To take the action of putting a rooster who has grown up as part of a flock and who has relationships in a flock to put that rooster, you know, into your car 
and drive them out into the country and throw them out into the woods in a strange place where they can't survive, it's, it's, it's vile, it's criminal. But that's part and parcel with keeping chickens for eggs. Because roosters are seen as such trash, it doesn't matter what happens to them. And, um, and, and even even people that want to keep them, oftentimes there are laws that because that you can keep so many chickens, but not roosters, usually yeah. because of the crowing, which it seems so ridiculous to me. I mean, lawn blowers, what are they, leaf blowers and lawn mowers and all that stuff is so much more loud and and terrible to hear than a rooster crowing. I just don't get it. But oftentimes, you know, people are dumping the roosters, even if they would keep them because ordinances don't allow them in their area. Yeah. And so there's only a few exceptions to this, but most like cities and towns who allow chickens prohibit roosters because of the noise issue. Um, And so you're exactly right. Like even if people wanted to keep uh, like a rooster who shows up in a, in a batch of chicks that they ordered, a neighbor is going to complain and they're going to have to get rid of them. And so, you know, they go to a shelter or they go out into the woods. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just part of the, the whole, you know, speciesism that is, that's attached to the chickens. And then the roosters especially are just seen as like, a, like an inconvenience. A nuisance animal. Exactly. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, yeah, we at UPC get so many calls and emails about roosters. I mean, it's it's just endless, the people that are trying to find some place for a poor abandoned rooster. It's terrible. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's 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 awful. Um I mean and and you know, most rescues and sanctuaries and stuff, they they are very limited in the number of roosters that they're going to take in. And so just the the it's an endless, endless need for roosters. And it's all because of it's all because of backyard chicken keeping. It's all because um, of eggs. We it's all because that. of eggs, yeah. And but then but but specifically like the roosters who like you're getting calls about, like they're backyard chicken keepers. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, ultimately, yeah, no, it's because of eggs. It's yeah, we just eggs. we have to stop looking at eggs as food. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Yeah. So I want to switch gears a little bit. You're going to be contributing uh, to an anthology that I'm putting together. You're going to be a contributing writer. It's an anthology that I'm calling the Humane Hoax Anthology. And the Humane Hoax, of course, is all those labels that we're seeing, the free range, cage-free, organic, as well as the backyard chicken keeping that we've been talking about, that is part of the humane hoax. And so I'm, I'm collecting uh, chapters from academics and uh, activists and authors, and Justin, you're going to be contributing, and I am excited mm-hmm. about that. So yeah. I wanted to ask you why you think the humane hoax issue is important, and also what your chapter's about maybe. Can you give us a little preview? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, in terms of the humane hoax as a, as an issue, I mean, that's entirely wrapped up in, in uh, all the the work that we do as a sanctuary and as a rescue. Um, and it's also really where I've I've shifted my focus as a vegan, you know, activist and advocate, <clears throat> is to focus on that that myth of of humane animal products. Because again, like like I'm living with the victims of so-called humane animal farming. And I can see it for the lie that it is because I see what happens to them. And I see what would have happened to them if we had not stepped in and given them sanctuary. We like to think about, about well, you know, these small scale farms aren't that bad because they're not killing, you know, billions of animals every year and stuff like that. And for me, it's really, you know, not only kind of a, a, a useless uh, 
distinction to make, but it's also kind of offensive because why does the life of, of an animal who's on a, like a, in a family's backyard mean less than the life of one of, you know, billions of animals who's kept in an industrial farm? Like it's, it's, it, it doesn't matter whether or not the animal is on one farm or the other. The fact that they're being used and are, are being killed is where the ethical question lies. And so the aesthetics of where they live means nothing. The ethical question is whether or not it's okay to use and exploit them and to kill them. And the answer is no. And so it doesn't matter what type of farm they're on. And on a practical level, like I see, I've been on so many of these small scale farms and in so many backyards that like I see how atrocious these places are. Um, and they may, that may not be apparent to people who go there and, and, and don't know what they're looking at and don't know the situations, but, but I do. And I see that these situations where animals are being kept for food are not good. They're not there for the be- animal's best interest, and they ultimately result in suffering and death. Yeah. Can you give some specifics and maybe about an animal that you've rescued from one of these situations? <clears throat> Yeah, and so, and just to tie into the anthology chapter, like that's really what my chapter is going to be about, is talking about individual rescue stories and kind of using those as lenses through which to question the the notion of humane animal farming. But yeah, but one of the, one of the one example that's like remains you know super poignant for me um, is a, a little hen named Bibi. She was hatched and and was being kept on like a, a, a like a small alternative school. And one night, uh, a raccoon broke into the very unsafe and inadequate contraption that the, the hens were being kept in. And so one night, uh, a raccoon broke in and killed three of the hens and was in the process of killing Bibi when the woman who ran the school heard the ruckus and ran out and scared the raccoon off. Um, and so Bibi suffered some physical injuries, like her beak is still broken and shorter than it should be because of the, the raccoon basically bit it off. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, this happened in 2014, and uh, they contacted us because uh, basically BB was traumatized. She would just basically spend all day uh, at their sliding glass door just staring into it. And then at night, she refused to go back into the, the chicken tractor where the attack happened and instead would sleep in a, in a tree. And for me, when, when I picked BB up and brought her home, like she was shell-shocked. She just like, you know, she looked like she had been through a war Um, and she just like wouldn't move. She would barely eat like she just was was traumatized. But the fact that she was sitting at their sliding glass door every day was so like so painful for me because I realized like what she was doing is she was looking at her reflection. She had lost all of her sisters, all of her flock mates. She had nobody. The only thing she had left was her reflection. It just shows like how people see chickens as more or less, you know, of no value. And so they're kept in these unsafe uh, enclosures and these unsafe chicken tractors. And when, when a predator kills them, it's like, oh, well, you know, circle of life, it just happens. But you see what it actually means for these individuals when you see what BB went through. She had to overcome her emotional trauma, which she did by meeting other chickens here at our sanctuary. She had to overcome the physical trauma to learn how to eat again and to learn how to drink again with a, with a maimed beak. You know, she had to learn how to live with the consequences of that, that attack. And for the, the people who had her, like she was just one out of, you know, a group of chicks that they hatched, um, whose brothers were all taken and whose sisters now, and her sisters now were dead because of this, this predator attack. And now she's, you know, pushing, she's over eight years old, um, which for a leg hen is, leghorn hen 
is like, you know, <laughs> it's it, no, very few Leghorns get to live that old. Um, but she's rocking it. You know, she's running around sassy as ever, mm. um, bossy. You know, she she has friends and she loves her life. You can see the depth of their emotional experience and the way that they want to live and they want to be have relationships and they want to, you know, be part of a, of a group and to enjoy their lives. And if you just like, you know, use BB's story as like a telescope to think about all the billions of, of individuals who are out there in the farming system right now, every single one of them is BB. There's no difference. They want the same things. And the only reason that, that we, we prevent them from having that and we use them and we take from them and then we kill them when it's convenient for us is because we don't care about them as individuals. And ultimately, if you cared about individuals, you would not participate in the system that keeps them suffering and the system that puts them in people's backyards only to die or the system that throws uh, baby boy chicks into macerators, the system that mean, that says roosters can't live here, they have to be thrown out into the woods where they're going to die. Like that's all one system. It's not separate. And so the experiences that BB had are the exact things that happen and could happen to any chicken out there. And the only thing, the only reason that BB is different is because she had the opportunity to live her life at a sanctuary rather than to be used and killed on a farm. Mm, yeah. Oh, well, thank you for giving Bibi a second chance and giving her a home. I'm, I'm happy to hear that she's doing good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anybody else out there you want to tell their story? Any other animals on the sanctuary there you could tell us about? Um, yeah. Um, we have a rooster here named Salem uh, who came to us uh, a little, like actually a month after BB. So it was uh, October 2014 when he came to our sanctuary from a shelter. And he was, you know, typical story. He was dumped right at the age when he was starting to crow. And he was picked up as a stray by the animal control and was, uh, was at the shelter. <clears throat> and so he came to us as a, a young rooster. And for, for, he was really like, has been one of the most important people at our sanctuary in terms of helping us to kind of understand and see roosters in a new way. Um, so Salem has always been with other roosters ever since he was, he came to our sanctuary. After he came to us and was done with quarantine, we bonded him with another young rooster named Autumn. And they were like, you know, peas in a pot. They were inseparable. And they were the first time that we had seen that two roosters could actually be friends and to have a, like a really deep, important emotional connection. Um, and after Autumn passed away, like a year or so after that, Salem continued to be part of, of rooster flocks. And so, you know, we've seen like how he makes bonds with, with other roosters. And now like his, he's basically got like a bromance going with um, <laughs> another rooster named Eno. They're, they're just, it's again, they're inseparable. Um, and he's like six years old now. And he is part of a flock of three roosters. It's him, Eno, and a rooster named Cassandra, because we like to play around with, with gendered names. Um, but a rooster named Cassandra with Salem and Eno. And they're just like, they're the cutest little flock of, of three roosters. And they, they, they're very happy. And they have this really deep relationship, but especially Salem and Eno. And it's just amazing because like, like I said, Salem has never been a part of a flock with other, with hens. But he does all the normal roosters, rooster behaviors that we associate with roosters as flock leaders. And he does it for his rooster friends. Like you just see that like they form these bonds and relationships and that rooster, the nature of who roosters are has been very much misrepresented by society. 
and Salem is living proof of that because, you know, he gets along wonderfully with his rooster friends and he's super happy and he, you know, he likes to interact with us. And, you know, it's like all the things that you think roosters can't be is who Salem is. So we do need to wrap up, but I wanted to ask how people can get in touch with you. If you had any final thoughts that you'd like to uh, share and you know, how, how people can support your sanctuary. Yeah, well, I mean, you can find us on trianglechickenadvocates.org um, or on Facebook at Triangle Chicken Advocates. Um, that's probably the best and easiest way to reach me. Um, and then, you know, just in terms of final thought, like, uh, you know, I really would love for people to start thinking about the stuff we talked about, about backyard chickens and the humane hoax. Um, and I really would like for people to to take seriously that notion that like you know we have to challenge all forms of exploitation and we have to see through the kind of facade of happy animals to think about what it means for individuals to be part of a system that exploits and kills billions upon billions of individuals every year so um that's that's really where i think my, the focus of my work always is going to be is helping people understand these animals as individuals and then understanding you know the system that they're victimized by all right. Well, thank you so much, Justin. It was it was great talking to you. And I'm going to see you soon at our chicken webinar. Yeah, definitely. I'm looking forward to it in September. Thanks, Hope. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. As I said in the beginning of the show, Justin and I will be hosting the Humane Hoax Chicken Webinar, the first ever webinar focused entirely on chickens. It's sponsored by United Poultry Concerns, Triangle Chicken Advocates, Free From Harm, Compassionate Living, and others. It's coming up on Saturday, September 12th, 2020. And if you're hearing this podcast after that date, we will have the videos posted and available to watch soon after. To sign up for the webinar or to view the videos, go to www.humanehoax.org. That's H-U-M-A-N-E-H-O-A-X.org. And I'll have a link in the show notes as well. So we hope to see you over at the webinar soon. Thank you for your compassion. And please stand up and speak out for chickens with your actions and your dollars and live vegan. Thank you.